following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Proverbs. Once you're there, I invite you to turn to chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. On the one hand, these are the words of a wise human father to his sons. On the other hand, and in an ultimate sense, These are the instructions of our infinitely wise father in heaven to all of his sons and all of his daughters whom he loves, whom he delights in, and whom he's predestined for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ. These words before us this morning are able to make us wise for salvation. They are to make us progress in sanctification, and they are able to make us ready for glorification. And so, as always, it's with an incredible sense of privilege and honor and definitely unworthiness that I invite you to hear and heed the life-imparting, faith-sustaining, and heart-strengthening words of the true and living God. Proverbs chapter 4. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. And be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep until they have done wrong, unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. 
for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Behold, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This wise and loving father is after one thing in his beloved sons. One thing. It's not their outward obedience. It's not their avoidance of the path of the wicked. It's not clean speech. It's not pure eyes. It's not even that their ears be open and attentive to his instruction because we all know by shameful and painful experience how easy it is for life-giving instructions to go into one ear and write out the other. This wise and loving father is after something far more important than these good things that are certainly worthy of our pursuit. He is after the one thing that guarantees that when his instructions go into one ear, they don't escape, but they sink down, they take root, and they eventually bear fruit. They bear fruit in outward obedience. They bear fruit in avoiding the path of the wicked. They bear fruit in clean speech. They bear fruit in pure eyes. They bear fruit in open ears, attentive ears, ready to be instructed by God. This wise and loving father is after the hearts of his sons. Although the heart is only mentioned three times in this chapter, make no mistake about it. It's central to all the other instructions in this chapter. Notice again King Solomon's three references to the hearts of his sons. Verses three through four. He says, when I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Verses 20 and 21. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. And then verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. This wise father knows that if his words can penetrate and permeate and saturate the hearts of his sons, they will live in the exercise and growth of grace here and also walk in the blessed assurance of eternal glory hereafter. Over the course of the next 
few weeks, the heart of the matter for our consideration will be the matter of the heart. And the heart of our study in God's word will drive us to another study, the study of our hearts. And my goal is to seek to open up and draw out all of the help, all of the hope, and all of the wholesome teaching contained in Proverbs 4.23, to which I would point your attention again. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. I want you to notice the three elements that make up this extremely important verse. First, God sets forth a mandate of supreme importance. Keep your heart. Secondly, God gives us the means of obeying the mandate. Keep your heart with all vigilance. And then thirdly, God lays out the motivation for obeying the mandate. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So we're given a mandate, we're given the means of obeying it, and we're given the motivation for obeying it. Christian, listen very, very carefully to me. This may be just one of 31,000 verses in the Bible. And although in the original, this is just 11 out of the 783,000 words found in the word of God, This contains one of the most important commands that God has ever given to his people, which is why every Christian is to prioritize the keeping and right managing of his or her heart at all times and above everything else in this life. This is what Proverbs 4.23 was saying back then and is saying to us now, as Christians, we are to prioritize the keeping and right managing of our hearts at all times and above everything else in this life. Now, I recognize, even based on some of your faces, that that's a bold claim. After all, who am I to use language like most important and above everything else in this life? But let me try to convince you that this is not a careless claim. This is not an exaggerated expression. This is not a reckless remark that I'm making simply because this happens to be the verse that I'm preaching on today. Right? Every preacher does that. Gets up and says, this is the most important verse in all of Scripture. Preachers do that. I'm not doing that this morning. In terms of biblical priorities, you might say, well, I thought that the chief end of man, the primary purpose of man, is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And I would agree. But let me ask you the question. How can you glorify God and how can you enjoy God when your heart is cold and calloused and captivated by the charms of this world? Others might say, in terms of biblical priorities, I thought that the great and first commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. But brother or sister, how can you love the Lord your God with all your heart when your heart is distracted and distant and divided and double-minded? 
In terms of biblical priorities, others who are more family-minded might say, I thought that the highest priority as a Christian is to fulfill our biblical responsibilities to our spouses, to teach our children, and to leave a godly legacy for the next generation. But brother or sister, how can you do anything of eternal significance when your heart is impure? When your heart is indifferent, when your heart is ignorant or inflamed with the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches or the desires for other things. In terms of biblical priorities, others might assert, I thought that our highest priority is the Great Commission to preach the gospel and to see to it that we are making and marking and maturing disciples for the glory of Christ. But I would ask. How can you be effective and fruitful in gospel ministry, in any degree of gospel ministry, if your hearts are overflowing with fatness, with folly, futility, and the fear of man? How can you effectively point others to the love of God when you, in your heart, have abandoned the love that you had at first? Are you beginning to see that behind and beneath and over and above all of these vitally important matters is the matter of your heart? What it's filled with, where it's at, how it's doing, what it loves, what it hates, what it longs for, what it's driven by, and whether or not you take seriously your God-given mandate to keep and guard and rightly manage your heart with all vigilance. It is no exaggerated expression to walk away from Proverbs 4.23 and conclude that as Christians, we are to prioritize and make first the keeping and right managing of our hearts at all times and above everything else in this life. Why? Because everything we do and don't do, everything we are commanded to do and commanded not to do, ultimately flows from our hearts. That's why the verse ends with this wise father laying out the motivation for keeping the heart. He says, for from it flow the springs of life. From the heart flow the springs of life. This means that every stream, whether good or bad, every stream, whether godly or ungodly, Every stream, whether it results in eternal reward or enormous regret, whether it gives life or whether it kills, every stream ultimately flows from the ever-gushing fountain of our hearts. That's why we are to prioritize the keeping and guarding and right managing of our hearts at all times and above everything else in this life. This is a mandate of supreme importance, a duty that none of us can afford to ignore or neglect or to continue to put off for tomorrow. Today is God's day. Tomorrow's the devil's day. To live always in the tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to get right. Tomorrow my heart's going to get right. Tomorrow I'm going to start managing my heart. Tomorrow, after I enjoy the Lord's day, tomorrow I'll begin the hard work of heart work. If we continue to 
put this off for another day. God only knows the untold streams and torrents that will gush forth from our lives and who and what will be destroyed and swept away by them. That's the daunting aspect of this verse. It tells us that failure to keep the heart at all times and above everything else can result in untold disaster and destruction for both you and everything and everyone around you. However, there's an extremely encouraging aspect to this verse, which tells us that success in keeping the heart at all times and above everything else can result in unfathomable blessedness, both for you, your family, and everything and everyone around you. And we need to spend time pondering and considering the outcome of both realities. We need to spend time thinking, meditating, contemplating, considering what the outcome would be if you keep your heart and if you don't keep your heart. You need to spend time asking the question, what would happen to my Christian witness? What would happen to my marriage? What would happen to my children and my life as a whole if I fail to guard my heart at all times? What blessing and what spiritual prosperity would I experience in terms of my Christian witness, my marriage, my children, and my life as a whole if I were to prioritize and, by the grace of God, actually succeed in keeping and guarding my heart at all times? These are questions we need to ask ourselves in times of peace and prosperity but especially in times of temptation and trial. I want you to notice in the text who is called upon to keep and guard the heart. In the immediate context, this wise father is calling upon his sons to keep their hearts. But in the broad context, the command is given to us, the people of God. I want you to notice that the duty is ours. God calls you as a Christian to keep your own heart. Richard Elling, Puritan pastor from the 1600s, wrote, there are many cares that lie daily upon us. We have our estates, we have our names, our families, and our bodies to take care of. But our great care must be for our hearts. I was talking to Christian this week at work, and I was talking about the difference between Christianity in the 1600s and the rich era of the Puritans, the rich sermons that came out of that era, the great writings that came out of that era, and today. And one of the things you find if you begin to explore the world of the Scottish or English Puritans, is their emphasis on keeping the heart. I have an entire book here, 412 pages, devoted to Proverbs 4.23. How to keep the heart. Why to keep the heart. What are the dangers to our hearts? John Flavel had a, a treatise called Keeping the Heart. 
volumes of Puritan literature devoted to rightly managing your heart. And yet the emphasis today is all the external stuff, right? Here's what you need to go out and do. Here's how you need to be radical. Here's how you need to be fruitful. No, they understood something that we seem to have forgotten. Everything that we do and don't do, everything that we are commanded to do and commanded not to do, everything that flows from our lives ultimately flows from the fountain of our hearts. And so if you have a bad, sick heart, that's going to result in bad and sick behavior. If you have a healthy, God-fearing heart, it's going to produce spiritual blessing and prosperity all around you. We are commanded to keep the heart. We are told in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, that the Lord God took Adam and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. We're told throughout the Pentateuch, specifically the book of Numbers, that the priests, the Levitical priests, were to keep guard over the tabernacle. And we're told here in Proverbs that we are called to keep guard over the sanctuary and garden of our hearts. In light of everything you are and everything God calls you to do, you have been appointed as a keeper, a keeper of your own heart. Even as God planted the Garden of Eden and entrusted it to Adam's care, he planted your own heart within you and entrusted it to your care. And the sobering reality that we are taught in the word of God is that one day we will give an account of ourselves to God. The God who now says, keep your heart with all vigilance, will then say, how have you kept your heart? How have you managed to guard the most precious part of you? We are told in the Bible that to whom much is given, much will be required. And considering how much God has given us in giving us our hearts, much is required of us. But what I hope to show you throughout the next several weeks is that although the duty of keeping our hearts is ours, the power is God's. The duty is ours, but the power is God's. The same God who calls you to keep the heart is the same God who said in John 15:5, without me, you can do nothing. Now, I think we would all agree that only that which is precious and valuable is worthy of being kept and guarded. A family will keep and guard a garden from weeds and wild animals because of what that garden provides for them. A nation should guard its borders because of how hard past generations have fought to establish that nation's peace and prosperity. A bank will set up physical and digital guards to protect the money that belongs to its members. And it'd be easy at this point to just belabor the point by giving you more and more examples of that which is precious and valuable is that which is guarded and protected. Do you realize this morning that the most precious and valuable part of you is not your property? It's not your assets. It's not your education. It's not your degrees. It's not your job. It's not your resume. It's not your talents. It's not your bank account. 
It's not your retirement plan. It's not your physical health. It's not your family. It's not your personal appearance. The Bible teaches us that the most precious and valuable aspect of you is your heart, your spirit, your inner person, the true you. There's a reason why the Apostle Peter exhorted women saying, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. There's a reason why when Samuel was sifting through all the sons of Jesse in search of God's sovereignly appointed king to replace Saul, God said to Samuel, do not look on his outward appearance or on his height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. Are we looking at something different than what God is looking at today? We come into the presence of God. We approach him in prayer. He's looking at our hearts. We're looking at our bank account. We're looking at all these external things. God is looking at our heart. Is that where you're looking today? His eye is upon the most precious and valuable part of us. When God looks at us, he looks at our hearts. And yet we foolishly spend so much time and energy and resources and money focusing solely on our outward appearance. That's why the Apostle Paul told young Timothy that while bodily training is of some value, godliness, which flows from the heart, is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Well, in light of Proverbs 4.23, the most precious and valuable part in our possession is the fountain of our hearts. God has planted, God has appointed God has designed a fountain to gush forth from every one of us. And it's our duty to guard that fountain, to guard that spring. It has a God-given potential to gush forth streams of life-giving water that can bring refreshment and renewal in a world that's cursed and corrupt. But that's only if we take seriously our God-given mandate to keep and guard and rightly manage our hearts. Well, this morning, with the time remaining, I, there's a lot to cover. I'm not going to try to cover it all today. I want to just ask the question and answer the question, what is the heart? If we're called to keep it, if we're called to guard it, if we're called to rightly manage it, we need to know what it is. Before we can define the task at hand, we need to define the terminology in question with regard to the heart. What is the heart? Are we talking about that hollow muscular organ that pumps blood through our circulatory systems by rhythmic contraction and dilation? Or are we talking about something else? Well, there are times in the Bible when the heart is referred to in a literal sense, but by and large, whenever the heart is spoken of in scripture, it's not in a literal physical sense. 
Early on in Deuteronomy 6, 5, God commanded his people, you shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And there are good commentators and theologians who argue that what he's actually saying here is he's not trying to get us to focus on different aspects of us, like, okay, here's the heart, here's the soul, here's the spirit, here's the might. They believe it should read, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That is, with all your soul and with all your might. In other words, central to it all is the heart. Everything flows from the heart. So I want to give you nine biblical definitions of the heart in order to help you understand where we're going to be going the next few weeks. Number one, the heart is the place of memory. The heart is the place of memory. In Psalm 77, verse 6, the psalmist wrote, Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. The heart is a place where he would remember and recall the things that God has done for him in the past. And so in light of this, we are called to guard and keep the things that we remember. There are things that we are called to remember and things that we are called to forget. Psalm 37 verse 31 says, The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. You see, the the psalmist looked at the godly man and the godly woman and said, They store God's word in their hearts. Like Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The heart is the place where we retain things. We, We hold things. We treasure things up. We store things up. It's the place of memory. That's the place that you were called to guard. Guard what goes in and guard what stays there. Guard what you retain. And if it's not worth remembering, pray for grace to forget about it, to forget it. In Ecclesiastes 7.22, it says, Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. It's a place of memory. Secondly, the heart is the place of the intellect or the thought life. The thought life. Typically today in our Western culture, we think of the thought life as happening in the mind. But biblically, it's the heart. The heart and the mind are used interchangeably throughout the scriptures, but it's the place of the intellect, the place of reason, the place where you chew on things and think on things and process things. That's what we're called to guard is the thought life. In Genesis chapter six, verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, it's the place where people think, where they interact with themselves, where they make decisions, where they determine things. Ecclesiastes 2.1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. So you see the writer of Ecclesiastes there, Solomon, is saying things in his heart. Come now, let's reason, let's think about this. The heart is the place where you think and process things, information. We're told in Luke 2.19 that Mary, the mother of our Lord, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. What 
her son would accomplish, what would happen to her son. She pondered these things, tossed them back and forth in her heart. Psalm 4, verse 4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. It's the place of pondering. Psalm 139, verse 23, the psalmist prayed, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. The heart is the place where thoughts bubble up, where thoughts arise. Proverbs 6.18 says, A heart that devises wicked plans and feet make haste to run to evil. The heart is a place where you devise things. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. Proverbs 15.28 Even into the New Testament, this is not just a Hebrew thing, but even into the Greek world now. Matthew 9.4, we read that Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? He knows their thoughts, and he knows where these thoughts are bubbling up out of. It's their hearts. The heart is the place of the memory. It's the place of the intellect, your thought life. Guard your thought life with all vigilance, for from your thought life flow the springs of life. Thirdly, the heart is the place of emotion and affection. It's the place where you feel emotion, where you feel affectionate and affections. Leviticus 19 talks about hating your brother in your heart, looking at your brother, your neighbor, and feeling emotions of hatred in that heart. That, that's, where, that's where you feel that. We are to love the Lord with all our heart. That emotion, that expression of love arises in the heart. That's the place you are to guard. You are to guard your emotions. You're not just to let your emotions run wild. Well, this is how I'm feeling today. I guess this is how I'm supposed to live today. No, you are called to guard your emotional life. You are called to guard your thought life. You are called to guard your affections. Lord willing, we will be looking at the next few weeks how to do that. Fourthly, the heart is the place of the will, the place of volition, where, where decisions are made, where you determine, I am going to do this. It's the place of the will. We are told in Exodus 4.21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that, you do not, see, that, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Do you see, where did the ter- determination to not let the people go come from? From Pharaoh's heart. He says, I will not let them go. Why? Because that was where it was decided. It was in the heart. Jesus taught in Matthew 15 that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These, things, these, these outward actions are determined in the heart. The heart chooses the course of action and the body, bodily members carry that action out. Our members are servants of our hearts. Your eyes do what the heart commands it to do. Your hands do what the heart purposes. The heart wants sin. Your hands go for sin. The heart craves sin. Your eyes serve that heart. It's the place of volition where the will is made up, where the mind is made up, so to speak. 
That's the place we are to guard the will. Do you see how important this is? Are you beginning to see, wow, this is a duty that I've neglected or put off or just haven't thought about for a long time? Well, perhaps this is a day for a joyful repentance, for a joyful realignment of your priorities. That's what church is for. That's what the word of God is for. We come in from a chaotic week. We come in from prioritizing this and that, and God sets us down, sits us down, opens his word and says, this is your priority, your heart, your heart. People think, oh, my problem is just with my eyes. I have lustful eyes. No, friend, your problem is with your heart because the eyes will only go after what the heart longs for. If you have a bad heart, you will have bad eyes. You think, oh, my problem is just anger. No, the problem is with an angry heart. What's wrong with your heart? Search your heart. Sit before God and say, Lord, search my heart and examine what's in there. Why, is it, why, why am I angry? Why is my heart not happy? Why is my heart not satisfied in my shepherd in heaven? Why is my heart not content in what he's given me? Why is my heart not content to rest in his sovereign love? You see, there's always a deeper issue. And so much of our Christianity today is merely external, always focused on the actions, the outward expressions, the externals, where God is continually, by his word, drawing us back to where the focus should be, which is the heart that is in us, bubbling out, gushing forth. Adultery begins in the heart. Theft begins in the heart. False witness, slander, begins in the heart. It's the place of the will. Fifthly, the heart is the place of deepest desire. The place of deepest desire. Psalm 20 verse 4 says, May he, God, grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. The heart is where you long for things. It's where you desire things. It's where you wish for things. It determines everything. Where you're going to desire to go to lunch after this. It's, 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 it's everything. From a small decision about lunch to who you're going to marry. Or who you're tempted to cheat on. Cheat with. It all begins here. The heart place of deepest desire. Proverbs 6.25 talks about to his sons, he says, do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let your, her, her capture you with her eyelashes. You see, even before a woman can capture you with her eyelashes, if she's already got your heart, you're done. You're done. Do not desire her beauty in her heart, in, in your heart. This is obviously the forbidden woman. It's not talking about husband and wife here. It's the place of desire. Guard your, the place of deepest desire, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep and rightly manage the place of your deepest longings. Because if you don't guard it, there's no telling what streams and torrents that will result in. Sixth, the heart is the place of deepest devotion. Deepest devotion. 
We read in 1 Kings chapter 11, ironically, about this same king, Solomon. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of David, his father. Sad that the writer of the Proverbs in his old age turned away, had his heart turned away. The guy who's telling us, we're we're assuming that Solomon is the writer of, of the majority of the Proverbs at least, but the guy who's telling us, guard your heart for from it flow the springs of life in his later years had that same heart turn away from Yahweh, turn away from his covenant God to turn up after other gods. It's the place of deepest devotion. No wonder God looks upon the heart. He knows your heart this morning. He, he knows where your heart is. He knows how your heart is. And he knows what you are deeply devoted to in your heart, even now as you sit under the preaching of his word. He knows what you are deeply devoted to, what you are ultimately devoted to. It's the place of deepest devotion. We are told... In Isaiah 29, God says, This people, they draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. We're going to see over the next few weeks what the heart is capable of. Here we're told in Isaiah 29, 13, the heart is capable of being far from God. It's capable of being broken. It's capable of being filled. We're going to look at all these things. And the more we consider what the heart is, what it's capable of, what it does, the more inclined and empowered we will be to actually and successfully, by the grace of God, guard these hearts of ours. Seventh, the heart is the place of the conscience. The heart is the place of conscience. There was a time when David was pursuing Saul in the wilderness We're told that he met him in a cave while he was sleeping. And you remember what he did? He cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And we're told this. Afterward, David's heart struck him. What was that? It was his conscience. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. It's the place of conscience. That's the place you're you're to guard. You're to guard your conscience. And what we're going to see over the next few weeks as well is the heart is capable of being trained. That's the good news. The conscience is able to be trained. So right now, your conscience might not wink at sin. Good news. By the grace of God, you can train your heart to feel every last sting of even the smallest sins. You can train your conscience. You can train your heart. If the false teachers in Peter's day could have hearts trained in greed... How much more can our hearts be trained in godliness? Have our consciences trained to hate what we truly ought to hate and to love what we truly ought to love. And when we don't do that, to have the heart immediately like David, have it strike us. We're told in 1 John 3, 20 that whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. What's what's, what's happening there? It's the place of conscience. Whenever the heart condemns you, when your conscience condemns you, The good news is that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. That's the place we are to guard the conscience. Number eight, the heart is the place of motivation. That's the place we are to guard. 
You're to guard what you are driven by. You are to guard what drives you, what compels you, what controls you, what moves you, what motivates you. That's what you are commanded to guard. Because from that place of motivation flow all the springs of life, whether good or bad. You are to guard the place of motivation. You are to search your motives frequently. For you to search your heart is for you to search your motives. Uh, We know this today, right? When, When someone judges us, We'll say things like, man, he, he thinks he knows my heart. Or she, she, she's assuming that she knows her heart. Well, what she's really saying is, you assume that you know my motive, my intent, my intention, my motivation. The heart is the place where you are motivated to do one thing or another. That's the place you are to guard and train, as we're going to see. The place of motivation. So where do we find that in Scripture? 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. He was motivated to continue pressing on and pressing forward and pressing upward in the midst of all his trials. And so he did not lose heart. Did not lose heart. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts, encourage the place of motivation. Colossians 2, 2 talks about hearts being encouraged. Lastly, the heart is the place of, and this is not eloquent, it's the true you. The heart is the true and real, unmasked you. It's who you are. That's why Jesus said the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. That's why Peter talked about the true woman within is, 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 is supposed to be the hidden person of the heart, having the imperishable beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 19, a very key verse. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. As in water, face reflects face. You see your reflection Well, guess what reflects your true you? It's your heart. It's your heart. You and I are commanded to keep and guard who we really are, what we are actually driven by at all times and above everything else. This is what you are commanded to keep, what you are commanded to guard. You are commanded to guard and keep the place of memory, what you take in, what you store, what you deposit there. You are commanded by God to guard your thought life, to not have your thoughts unruly and running around all over the place. God is there as your father to help you decide what to let in and what to let out in terms of your thought life. You're to guard the place of the emotions and the affections. You're to guard the place of the will, the place of deepest desire, the place of deepest devotion. You are to guard the place of the conscience and the place of motivation. You are, to call, you are called to guard the true you. You are to guard the place God is looking at today. God, 
man focuses and looks on outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. That's the place that you were called to guard. And so I ask you a very simple question this morning by way of introduction into this series. Where is your focus this morning? Where is your real focus this morning? Is it external or is it internal? If it's not internal, there's good news. God invites you into the joy of repentance. Maybe your problems have been arising in your life because you, for so long, have just been focusing on the externals, guarding the eyes, guarding the, guarding the tongue, guarding where your feet go during the day, guarding who you talk to, guarding who, who talks to you. Friends, we guard everything else except our hearts. We are called to guard our innermost being in order to be fruitful and effective people in this world. By God's grace, we will learn how to guard these hearts, what it means to keep the heart, why we need to keep the heart, when we need to keep the heart, those special seasons wherein we need to keep the heart. You're called to keep the heart in seasons of adversity, in seasons of prosperity, in seasons of need, in seasons of deep trial, in seasons of dark temptation. You're called to keep your heart in, at all times. Seasons of spiritual fruitfulness where it seems like the Lord is opening doors for you. There's where you need to guard the heart as well. Every fathomable season is a season that you need to guard the heart. In one of John Bunyan's books, The Holy War, he described the heart like this. There was reared up in the midst of this town a most famous and stately palace. For strength, it might be called a castle. For pleasantness, a paradise. For largeness, a place so copious as to contain all the world. For largeness, a place able to contain all the world. The place that King Shaddai intended but for himself alone and not another with him partly because of his own delights and partly because he would not that the terror of strangers should be upon the town. This place Shaddai made also a garrison of, but committed the keeping of it only to the men of the town. He's, he's, he's allegorical. He's talking about the heart. He says, if the heart could be likened to a palace, it's a beautiful palace. If you could talk about its strength, the heart is like a castle, thick walls. If, it's, if, it's, if we're talking about a, a, a large place, it's, it's, the heart is so big as to contain the whole world. As I was thinking about it in my preparation this weekend, we're told in Jeremiah 17, and even in, into the letters to the churches in Revelation, that only God is able to search and really know the heart. Now, we can, with his help, plumb some of its depths, but the heart is one of those things where Almighty God says, only I can know that. Can you fathom that? It takes an infinite mind, the infinite God, to say, only I can know that. Well, what else is infinite? The universe. Do you realize that your heart is as vast as this universe? There are unexplored areas in this universe where we have, we have, we have laid no eye, 
even with this James Webb telescope, it, it still will not be able to reach that distant galaxy or that distant beauty over here. But yet God knows every single star by name. And he knows our hearts. And so we're to go into this study and go from this place, understanding that even as there's a vast universe around us, friends, it's equally sobering that there is, an, there is a vast universe within these hearts of ours that we, 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 we've never laid eyes on. And yet God knows them perfectly well and is able to lead us in managing them, lead us in keeping them, lead us in, 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 in guarding them. And so I ask you today, where is your focus? Because your focus should be within your heart. John Flavel said, above all other studies in the world, study your own hearts. Waste not a minute more of your precious time about frivolous and sapless controversies. Leave trifling studies to such as have time lying on their hands and know not how to employ it. Remember that you are at the door of eternity and you have other work to do. Those hours you spend upon heart work in your closets are the golden spots of all your time and will have the sweetest influence to your last hour. Heart work is weighty work. It's difficult work. If we err there, it may cost you your souls. A man can err in nothing more easily or more dangerously. Oh, then study your hearts. And finally, William Gurnall, the author of The Christian in Complete Armor, said, be intimately acquainted with your own heart and you will be better equipped to know Satan's design against you who takes his method of tempting from the inclination and posture of your heart. As a general walks about a city and views it well and then raises up his batteries where he has the greatest advantage, so does Satan compass and consider the Christian in every part before he tempts. In other words, Satan studies your heart. He knows what you are deeply devoted to. He knows the decisions you are inclined to make in any given situation, and that's when he strikes Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And for us Christians here this morning, the heart, here's my last definition, the heart is the dwelling place of Christ. Christian read it, Ephesians chapter 3, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The heart is the place where you, 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 you commune with your Savior. Do you understand why you need to guard that sanctuary? God forbid that we allow the garden of our hearts to be overgrown with weeds so that when our Savior comes to visit with us, we can't even see his face or sense his presence because we tangled up in weeds. God forbid that when our Savior comes to commune with us, when we go to him in prayer, into the sanctuary of our hearts, he looks around and he sees other idols. He sees Moloch. He sees this God. He sees this loyalty over here. Guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. Let's pray.